This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Wandsman. There are many, many groups of interest within the SCP universe. From simple groups like the FBI's Unusual Incidents Unit to large-scale ancient groups like the Sarkites and the Mechanites. Some groups are actively opposed to the SCP Foundation and what they represent, but most just want to go about their own business. The group we'll be looking at today are in some ways a much smaller and humbler operation than the Foundation, and in other ways are operating on a much grander scale. The Wandsmen are a group of multiversal bird creatures that wield maps allowing them to teleport across dimensions which they use to record different stories and distribute them through newspapers. Obviously, not something the SCP Foundation agrees with, but the Wandsmen are a little hard to pin down. Let's take a closer look at how the group operates. Let's begin by looking at the Wandsman Orientation, designed to introduce new Wandsmen to the organization. It begins with the speaker stating that if any of the new members are still experiencing lingering transformation pains, they can use the marker placed on their maps to easily teleport back to their beds. The speaker formally welcomes each of them to the Wandsman, an organization dedicated to bringing the news and the truth to all those who seek knowledge, students of all that is, and teachers to all who will listen. They have been the multiverse's best source of information and explanations for untold eons, and even in these trying times, they remain dedicated to bringing the true stories of the worlds they explore to the multiverse at large. The news is a vital institution in a universe as complex as theirs, so they do their best to preserve and promulgate all the knowledge they can find so that it is not lost to the void. One of the new Wandsmen begins to interrupt the orientation, as he is apparently complaining about the transformation that they're going through. The speaker says that he is not forced to be here, and he had the chance to back out of the process while the transformation was ongoing, but it seems he wanted the power of teleportation more than he wanted his old flesh. The Wandsman leaves by teleporting elsewhere, so the speaker continues, deciding next to address the elephant in the room, the bodily transformations they're all going through. When one takes up the map of the Wandsman, their body shifts into a more avian form, specifically the quasi-humanoid form of a bird that you previously found repulsive. They have a few theories as to why that is such as the cartographers of Eon's past who inscribed the first maps wanted to change their perspectives, or perhaps teach them humility before they granted the maps gifts. There are millions of review articles with different theories, and no one really knows why it happens. Regardless, this new form has many advantages. They will be able to understand others with greater acuity, their bodies have been strengthened, Age is a thing of the past, and most Wandsmen are granted the gift of flight. If some of them have shrunken down to the size of a canary, it just means that their body has been granted the elusive power to explore the strange and twisting wonders of time. They can slip through cracks in reality which the larger Wandsmen may never even notice, and even have cartographic potential. If they're larger instead, like the speaker, they possess the strength to lift up a thousand libraries if needed. Some of the multiverse's stories require great force to unearth, and the large wandsmen help provide it. Other wandsmen are commonly granted unique and curious abilities, ranging from an instant understanding of language to echolocation. The speaker says that this form isn't a curse, but rather a blessing, 
although then says that they can't say that with a straight face and still be called a seeker of truth. Regardless, things like beauty are ultimately a matter of perspective. They all took up the map because there was something in the infinite halls of knowledge that you wanted to see far more than you wanted to recognize the person in the mirror. Also, there's no cure, no way to go back that they know of. People have tried, but most of them aren't with them anymore. Everyone here has suffered in similar ways, and one can, over the years, adjust. They can even find love, as the speaker and their husband have been writing articles together for over 600 years, and the eons of time they still have before them make them very happy they took this shape. Moving on, they know that all of these wandsmen have joined because they had a desire to explore the multiverse and tell their tales. Before they get to all that though, they need to establish some safety rules. Their new bodies are hardened against many hazards, but one major unusual threat to their safety in this line of work is the theft or exploitation of their name. There are two major strategies when protecting one's name, one being to simply never give it out, or give it out only to those who you trust most in the world. Instead, they will generally be referred to by a title within the organization, with a number based on their place of origin. The speaker, therefore, is known as the third wandsman of the Wanderer's Library. These titles, given to each wandsman by the organization, are thaumaturgically hardened, so even the most potent name thieves cannot take it from them. The other strategy, employed by some of the more senior members, is to spread their name to everyone who would hear it, and add title upon title to themselves so as to strengthen the name's power. The famed wandsman Ickis the Wayward, wandsman of Kulmanas, walker of the astral plane, sailor of the celestial sea, and spelunker of the dimensional depths employs this strategy. He claims that it allows him to use his name as a sink for the backflow of his magics, but you'd have to ask him for more details. Name magic can be powerful, but it is also quite dangerous. There are many other magics that they may find useful to employ, however, as their minds have been sharpened by their transformation, so the higher physics of reality should be relatively easy for them to pick up. They have a back-issue library of ritual workings, and run courses on magical studies for all wandsmen who wish to partake of it. No matter how quickly they master the arcane arts, however, they shouldn't get cocky. Magic will be an invaluable tool as they document the stories of other worlds, but they must not rely on it. There are many powers in the world they shall need to come to understand if they're going to survive this line of work and thaumaturgy is merely a piece of the puzzle. The first and most important piece of equipment they will need to familiarize themselves with is their map. The map they hold is a map of the known multiverse, and their cartography team is working around the clock to keep it up to date, but there's still so much to explore. By speaking the name of a place on the map, they can teleport to it, as they gain more intimate details of the objects and persons in a dimension, they'll even be able to target their precise destination. For this reason, among several others, doing their homework is important. Every century, they lose something on the order of 50 wandsmen who thought it was a good idea to jump into an incredibly hazardous dimension unprepared, with the lucky ones ending up in solid rock faces. Another major map safety concern is that prolonged exposure to the image on any map can make those whose minds are not properly prepared suffer severe vertigo and headaches, which many of them have likely already encountered while they adjusted to them during their transformations. As for other field equipment, they have workshops and catalogs aplenty for them to assemble their equipment from, and the 8th Wandsman of Hui runs excellent seminars on the creation of magical items. Generally speaking, basic resources are easy to acquire for smaller projects, as they are part of the Wandsman benefits package, 
But if they want to build something truly massive to aid in their explorations and the writing of their articles, they may need to request approval from the editors. The Wandsman organization is perhaps best described as a co-op, with their leaders and several key positions being elected, and everyone is considered to have partial ownership of their libraries. This doesn't mean that they can just take whatever they want from the stores or destroy any of their books, but they can requisition things like lodging and necessities with relative ease from the company coffers, so long as they do not abuse these privileges. There are various roles within the organization, such as the reporters, the most common role a wandsman performs, wandering the multiverse to record its stories. All wandsmen have at least some experience in this role. Hawkers are wandsmen who sell, or with approval provided no charge, their newspapers and magazines to all the inhabitants of the multiverse who have a chance to understand them. This is a difficult job, but a needed one. One must be both a salesman and teacher to bring in the resources they need to maintain operations. The raptors are those who uncover dangerous ruins and explore hostile dimensions. They will save lives, and thus minds, and thus knowledge, wherever they can, and provide security for the organization. There are many entities and forces in the multiverse that work against them, and the raptors are the brave souls who hold the line against such darkness. Arbiters, on the other hand, are the diplomats of the organization, as violence is best reserved as a last resort. Arbiters are elected for certain difficult regions to sort of smooth things over for the local population. Cartographers, however, require a certain attunement to the multiverse at large, and are responsible for mapping the various dimensions that surround them and pathfinding or tunneling ways between them. This job requires a great deal of magical knowledge to execute, as well as certain additional transformations that many find distasteful. It's rare to see a cartographer with less than a millennium of experience. Canaries, however, can be a minor exception to this, as they often find themselves sent out as scouts into strange new dimensions and locations of temporal distortion. They can carry very little with them on such voyages, though, and the multiverse can be a dangerous place for birds so small. Finally, there are the editors, which is an elected position decided every 500 years. The editors are in charge of day-to-day -day operations, approving story assignments and directing the flow of their resources. At the end of the day, they're in charge, although the speaker admits that they might listen to the cartographers a bit more attentively than the others. The speaker also ensures the others that there are no grand cartographers, as they have been here for millennia and have never seen so much as a feather of them anywhere. No one knows who started the organization, and if they want to join the legion of archaeologists trying to figure it out, they can go right ahead. However, the speaker spent a good century of their misspent youth trying to find them, and the oldest records they have stretch back only 3.7 billion years. Not even the Wanderer's Library had records of them, and it gave the librarians quite a scare when they asked. It's in their nature to try and make sense of every mystery, but looking into the grand cartographers isn't worth any of their time. The orientation is then interrupted by the third wandswoman of the first Hytoth, who bursts in to say that the entire second Hytoth is coming to an end, and they need to drop all this and do something to stop it. The speaker says that, they are well aware of the situation, and she didn't need to burst into the orientation to explain. The Wands woman, however, says that it probably won't happen in the next five seconds, but they still need to know. The speaker tells the new Wandsman that things are not great, and there are many organizations in the multiverse that seek to end it. A book is worthless without minds to read it, and neither can exist in a world that doesn't. 
There are many researchers in their organization that claim time is running out for just about everything. They are scholars, for the most part, not warriors, but it is unquestionable that right now the multiverse needs saving, and they have a responsibility to be a part of that. Whether they choose to do that by forging alliances between those who call this place home, warning the people and the gods so that they can prepare, or even charging into battle themselves, there will be nothing to learn and nothing to explore unless they keep it safe. With that, the orientation comes to a close. So, these individuals were once normal people from various different universes. After being repeatedly exposed to an anomalous map of the multiverse, they've all transformed into different bird creatures, for better or worse. The Wandsmen use these maps to travel to various locations across the multiverse, in an effort to accumulate knowledge and stories. They are similar in some ways to the Wanderer's Library, but they have a specific focus on seeking out stories and news, and they spread these news stories across the multiverse. That's why the most common role in the Wandsmen is that of a reporter. This sort of hands-on approach also necessitates certain specialized roles, either those better equipped for violence or danger, or those better equipped to be more diplomatic. The Wandsman Hub gives us a few examples of the different news articles that they might put out, from a newspaper titled Watching the Watchers, that costs either $1.99 or 2.5 secrets. The headlining article covers the decision from the evacuation fleet of the flesh-ravaged world of Kar Salem to have their entire population of 5,327 to begin the transformation process to become Wandsmen. Spokesmen from the fleet said that they viewed it as the best way to ensure their species is remembered, and may survive in some form but the influx of new members has the cartographers scrambling to increase supplies. Another article, relating to Earth, discusses the fourth Wands woman of Chelon, and her year spent as an arbiter there. After opening formal relations with one of the planet's major powers, the SCP Foundation, she has had to deal with multiple diplomatic incidents. Many amongst the editorial staff have been critical of her policy of open communication and negotiation with a volatile red zone power known for multiple sapient rights abuses. Also on Earth, another article discusses a crucial victory that the Wandsman Raptor troops had in Verdun. This is referring to SCP-6034 an anomalous trench in France that contains a portal to Alagada, the home of the Hanged King. There, the Foundation and the Serpent's Hand are battling an invading army from Alagada to prevent them from crossing over. The third allied division of the Raptors managed to capture an Alagadan command bunker, partially thanks to some new troops acquired by the Serpent's Hand through an outside power that is requested to remain anonymous. The second Sergeant of Rocks reports that the new troops were crucial, as their ability to capture and interrogate Alagadan forces allowed them to determine the origin of the mimetic poetry orders being sent to enemy troops. The successful push did cost the Allied forces 236 soldiers, but now they've severed Alagadan supply lines, and they may be able to recover some crucial information from the bunker once a hazardous thaumaturgic materials team has cleared it. Speaking of the SCP Foundation, they did in fact have one of the Wandsman's maps in their possession, listed as SCP-5917, along with the cadaver of a Wandsman themselves, the 12th Wandsman of Kirador. The map, which has since been returned to the Wandsman, appears as a brown parchment scroll, and it's impossible to fully unravel the scroll, with it consistently appearing to have the exact same amount of unraveled parchment. All attempts to take samples of the scroll have also failed, as it seems to be impossible to tear apart. 
The scroll appears to be some sort of map, containing a series of spirals with different labeled points appearing along them. The labels change based on the native language spoken by the person holding it, and several of the labels correspond to known dimensions. The illustrations on the scroll induce a feeling of severe vertigo in the viewer, although this is partially nullified by the use of a cognitohazard exclusion visor. If a user states the name of one of the labeled dimensions out loud, they will be transported to a random location within that dimension, always containing habitable conditions for the user's species. Individuals who have used the map multiple times claim that there are methods of teleporting to specific locations with the application of will. Prolonged use of the map alters the user's physiology into a form resembling the Wandsman cadaver. Continuous usage also appears to cause the user to develop an understanding of multiple languages, including several that the Foundation does not have references to in its linguistic databases. Alterations caused by the map increase with continued usage. The map was recovered from a group of islands off the coast of a small fishing town in Spain. Residents of the town reported that an unrecognized boat had moored there for several days and called the authorities seeking an explanation. Foundation retrieval teams investigated the site and determined that the rowboat contained a decomposing avian entity, approximately 2.4 meters tall, which had apparently received multiple stab wounds before perishing. Its four claws were wrapped around the map at the time of discovery. Later, researcher Barnes was examining the map with a mimetic exclusion visor when he read out loud the phrase, Spider's Horde, in surprise. He was immediately transported to dimension 12A3B. This dimension is a recently discovered reality that consists of underground tunnels containing large amounts of stolen items and humans, both living and dead. These items are dragged into the dimension by a group of semi-sapient giant arachnids, presumably using a currently unknown method of interdimensional travel. An MTF discovered this dimension while investigating a series of disappearances in a rural zone of Minnesota. They found numerous large chambers, similar to those dug by trapdoor spiders, and in spite of radar checks showing no evidence of caverns, Investigations into these chambers were conducted, revealing that they were a part of an interconnected, shifting tunnel network. This network contained both a species of giant arachnids and their victims, many of whom were kept alive and unbound for unknown reasons. The chambers also contained a large assortment of seemingly random objects. Items deemed of high economic value which had been reported missing were discovered within the tunnels, and it's believed that the giant arachnids are responsible for their presence, but they have yet to be observed collecting these items. Researcher Barnes arrived in a relatively calm area of this dimension, but panicked upon hearing an arachnid entity moving towards him. He attempted to defend himself by using a salvaged bar stool as an improvised weapon, but then realized how the map functioned. He held the scroll and stated home as his desired destination, returning to the base dimension, missing his pinkies and all of the skin on his hands. His injuries healed within three days, but his hands had reformed into a different morphology, resembling that of a bird's talons. Afterwards, Agent Briggs requested to use the map to travel back to the Spider's Horde dimension in order to rescue a fellow MTF agent that went missing in action. The site director asks him if he's aware that researcher Barnes had to be sedated for the duration of his recovery because he could not stop screaming. Briggs says that he's just offering to do what any good soldier would, and he knows that his fellow agent would trade a hell of a lot more than his hands to save him. The director agrees to let him go, pending a full psychological evaluation. Briggs uses the map to head in, managing to rescue six civilians trapped there, but doesn't find the other agent yet. 
In the follow-up evaluation, he's told that due to his partial transformation from using the map, he could now retire from the Foundation with full disability. Briggs says that he'd hardly call himself disabled, and his accuracy at the range is looking better than ever. He's the best chance his fellow agent has, and he can probably even save more civilians while he's at it. When asked if he realizes that they have no idea what repeated exposure to the map will do, he says that he might as well find out for them, and he's ready to lay down his life if it comes to that. During his next trip, he manages to rescue the other agent, along with three more civilians, but his feet have turned into claws, and feathers have appeared on his arms. Afterwards, another agent reports to the director that Briggs has been talking in his sleep in the barracks, but not in English. She knows that he doesn't speak any other languages, or at least he didn't, and she couldn't tell what most of them were. He did say something in Latin, though. Out of the unexplained comes nothing. A further investigation into Briggs revealed that the feathers on his arms had grown out, and his joints had subtle alterations. He's also gained the ability to speak at least five languages that the Foundation could identify, and several more they could not. Psychologically, he's reported distress at his condition, and shared their concerns over his mental alterations. He also noted that the last time he used the map, he had experienced less nausea, and appeared closer to his intended destination. Later, 056 came to Briggs to ask him to assist on a rescue mission. An MTF was pinned down in the Wanderer's library caught in the middle of a fight between the GOC and the Serpent's Hand. Briggs immediately agreed, managing to rescue twelve other agents, although three were killed in action. Briggs himself took a bullet to the shoulder, but now that he has fully transformed into a wandsman, no medical treatment was necessary. Upon return to the Foundation's site, the director was greeted by another wandsman, who apologized and asked to borrow the director's pen. When asked what she is, she responds that she's just a lovely lady who wishes to borrow his dictation pen for a few minutes. She is a reporter, one who has burnt away much of her standard beauty in search of the ultimate beauty of the truth. After a moment's pause, the director hands over his pen and she says that they'll be back in a jiffy before disappearing along with Briggs. Later, the dictation pen was returned to the director, now containing a recording of a conversation between Briggs and the Wandswoman. She introduces herself as the fourth Wandswoman of Chelon, and elected arbiter of her honorable guild. Briggs is clearly groggy, and she advises him to drink the tea to accelerate his healing. A single bullet hole will not likely do much harm in the long term, but he need not wait the two days for it to close on its own. His fellow soldiers will live, and she's sorry for those he lost. She lost a brother recently as well, so she certainly understands the pain. Briggs tells her not to compare what he went through to her loss, but she says not to insult her order. They too risk everything to save others, and the twelfth wandsman of Kirador put his life and limb on the line time and again to arm the people of the multiverse with knowledge. Briggs then asks what he was doing in Spain, pleasing the wandswoman by asking the right questions. Unfortunately, he'll have to wait for the Gazette's Internal Audit edition in 37 years, as it's not particularly relevant at the moment in any case. What is relevant to this conversation is that Briggs currently wields her brother's map, and has more than proven himself worthy of it. The question is, does he want it? Briggs asks if it comes with some sort of obligations other than being a hideous vulture monster. She tells him that she objects to being characterized as hideous, as beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Personally, she's grown fond of the non-standard beauty of a form that allows one to survive so much punishment in so many places. 
Still, it does put distance between you and your fellow humans, and that distance, and the pain of transformation, is the price you pay to demonstrate your resolve to save lives and perspectives so they may not be lost to the void. Briggs has certainly proven his devotion to saving lives, but his lack of devotion to perspective concerns her. He had no objections whatsoever to the removal of the memories and perspectives of the civilian people he saved, and that sort of thing would only be allowed in the most dire of circumstances by their organization. Briggs responds that he swore himself to the protection of normalcy, and those memories would have brought them nothing but pain. The Wandswoman sighs, and says that if he takes nothing else from this conversation, know that painful memories have value. They can provide you with great strength once properly understood, and even bring you closer to those who suffer. Briggs can understand that, but he still stands by his convictions, and the Wandswoman says that she might as well be trying to explain herself to a Mechanite, or one of the Nalka. Still, he at least earned her respect, and perhaps in a few millennia he might reconsider. She sends him back to the Foundation with the pen, but keeps a hold of the map. The document ends with a security notice noting that no formal containment procedures are deemed necessary for Agent Briggs, as he's one of ours. It seems that these maps don't appear out in the wild too often, but anyone who does pick one up is easily capable of using it to teleport, transforming into a bird creature in the process. The Wandsmen seem to be pretty pleasant most of the time, but also don't let people have the maps if they're not willing to join the organization, even if they've already changed. Finally, let's end with perhaps the most well-known document penned by one of the Wandsmen, titled A Wandsman in the Court of the Hanged King. Written by the one known as Ickis, it features his experiences in the nightmarish realm of Alagada, SCP-2264, home of the Hanged King and controlled by its ambassador. For more info, check out my video on the Hanged King or segments of SCP-6500, which also featured Ickis. I'll be reading this tale verbatim. Where a photic sea does deny Reflections of a xanthus sky And black stars reign without ascent Echoes of what was never meant A city built in unknown times Upon the bones of countless crimes Stranger yet is found within The chaos court of strife and sin the mad dance here without control, as all must play their given role. For those beyond our mortal ken, we die and live and die again. Our Lord does writhe atop his throne, before his glory we atone. With this our blood it is the hanged kings, so shall we suffocate upon his puppet strings. I write to you, dearest reader, from a certain bibliothecal nexus. I have bartered with the shades and expect my latest travelogue to, piece by piece, reach the infinite worlds. They know of the dark corners, the secret places and Janus doors in which to deliver my folios. I bleed words and have obliterated myself upon these pages for your entertainment and enlightenment. A Wandsman in the Court of the Hanged King I remember the rich aroma of decaying flowers as it struggled against a sharp, metallic scent for supremacy, neither lingering odor able to disperse the other. Clutched within my talons was a flesh-bound grimoire, the ill-tempered tome biting my hand at its first opportunity. I felt acquainted with its contents, as if having finished reading but moments before, and returned the spiteful book to its shelf. 
In retrospect, I am unable to recall a single word of it. There developed an itch about my left eye. Instinctively trying to soothe the irritation with the scratch, my talons sliding across a polished surface. A porcelain mask, seemingly irremovable, disguised my features. I cawed in frustration, the grievous itch beyond reach. A tall and conical entity wagged diverse appendages and trumpeted a shush. The firmical firmament of firm was right to be bothered, as I was, after all, within a library. Bowing my head apologetically, I took my leave of the aptly named Athenaeum of severed tongues, eager to explore. I arrived at the Hall of Mercurial Virtue with anomalous speed, unaware what occurred between the here and there. Such was the nature of Alagada, the restraints of time and space being mere suggestion, not law. Even as an experienced wanderer, I too succumbed to the city's dreamlike malaise. The Hall of Mercurial Virtue blurred the line between the beautiful and grotesque. Pilgrims and emperors, gods and monsters, entities from all possible realities playing their role in the eternal masquerade. Driven by ambition as black as the stars above, most sought a boon from the hanged king itself. My talons clicked together, my mind overstimulated by the grand chamber and its curious inhabitants. A decadent display of insidious glamour, Alagada was hardly the dismal realm initially anticipated. A moniker such as the Hanged King conjured forth images of death and decay, desolation and despair, not revelry. My eyes contained sixteen spectral receptors, and yet I only observed red, white, black, and yellow, the color scheme unexpectedly limited. Stranger still was the persistent taste of purple, near hidden beneath the reek of lust sweat and sweet meats. I tried to ignore the perplexing glare of anarchy and watched from a corner, relatively speaking. Alagada, the epitome of non-Euclidean architecture. Certain observations are simply too salacious for me to put to writing. However, when considering the infinite orgy, one may simply allow their imagination to run wild. Whatever you could possibly conceive, you'll find it within the hall of mercurial virtue. Suffice to say, Expect to see a diverse array of shame organs, usually entangled with other shame organs. Which brings me to my first observance. A flesh shaper of Aditum, their pale mask asymmetric, fondled a blood vestal of Deva with hand and tentacle, the two whispering terrible secrets into each other's ears. Their auras revealed a history intertwined, their copulation practically incestuous from my perspective. My revulsion gland nearly full, I sought something more palatable to my senses. A centaurial dreamsmith of Oniroi bargained with the deathless merchant of London, the one closest to real having the apparent upper hand. The merchant spat legal jargon, nasally articulating his terms of agreement, I detected no past or future for the dreamsmith, though an ephemeral existence is challenging to read. In contrast, the merchant cast a long shadow, where dead souls accumulated and pointed accusatory fingers. A trio of godlings, entities so often thought to be in opposition, mocked their mortal faithful their barbed tongues spitting venom and condescension. The three consisted of a horned tyrant of Panthus, a bedlam sprite of Zolnoksokthusi, and a hierarch cherub of Eldonai. Betwixt the godlings resided an altar, 
carved with symbols that twisted and blurred and seethed. A chitinous servitor delivered a hatchling to the shrine as one might deliver a meal. With dagger raised, the retainer chanted words that escaped translation. I averted my gaze, unwilling to watch their mortal strike. I heard the blade enter the flesh and the spill of blood. The servant removed the ghastly corpse and surrendered a curtsy before vanishing in a blink. Dinner had been served, and the cultivores appeared satisfied, feasting upon not the victim, but rather the symbolism of the atrocity. Symbols, I remind myself, have power to such creatures. Casting my eyes skyward, I beheld the legendary masked lords of Alagada. The White Lord, wearer of the diligent mask, a porcelain guise with eyes narrow, the mouth little more than a flat line. The Yellow Lord, wearer of the odious mask, a porcelain guise with brow furrowed, the lips curled into a hateful sneer. The Red Lord, wearer of the mirthful mask, a porcelain guise with eyes wide and manic, a smile carved from cheek to cheek. I saw no sign of the Black Lord, wearer of the anguished mask. This came as no surprise. They supposedly exiled him to some forgotten backwater of dimension. It is written that the cause had been political in nature, the specifics unknown. It is difficult to imagine the court intrigue of such a place. My feathers raised with a sudden shudder. Dread began its coil, transforming the music of my dual hearts to dissonance. A stranger, lithe and sable, made their opulent entrance. Accompanied by a coterie of harlequin sycophants and paper guards, they wore no mask, their faceless visage an aberration among the masquerade. My hope grew dim in the presence of the ambassador of Alagada. Their title was a misnomer, the designation unable to encompass the totality of their power and prestige. The ambassador of Alagada was the voice of the hanged king, their will made manifest and to whom even the masked lords bowed their marionette heads. I chose the better part of valor and made a casual retreat. The palace was a labyrinth, bereft of rhyme or reason. Drunk were the gods of physics, above and below without meaning, twisted by the pandemonium city. I encountered myself several times, always located at some unapproachable location, iterations of my past and future self. My attire was red, yellow, white, black, and utterly garish. I apparently having more concern with the enforcement of Alagad in fashion than the entanglement of time. And then, a burgeoning terror, an unseen threat closing fast. There existed a void where a memory should have been, unaware my arrival. Naked in my ignorance, I shivered as the chill gloom embraced me. The wind took pity and sung its sorrow song. As it diminished, it whispered unto me a warning. In here is a tragedy. I beheld Alagada's shadow an amalgamation of rust, rot, and misery, a dead city at the end of all things. Wandering its empty streets, I stepped over tattered banners and broken glass. Dust gave chase, granted life through my careless meanderings. The palace had come to ruin, its once splendid gates torn from their hinges. The hall of mercurial virtue was lifeless, a tomb for want and vanity. In the room's center was a gaping hole. No, not simply a hole, 
more an infected wound. A viscous ichor gushed from the aperture, an amber-colored substance imbued with the sick scent of failed creation. I entered the wound, crawling into the bowels of Alagada. I know not what overcame me, never intending to come this far. Was I to play this role from the beginning? From where I now reside, I can look back and see the puppet strings. I remember only little of my descent, just the singular desire to find what hid beneath. I was a scholar, an explorer, and would play my part well. The broken rules of time and space again summoned me elsewhere. A windowless room of humble stone, cloaked in a layer of sepia fog and bereft the opulence so common to Alagada. I sensed no name among its shrouded corridors. Sickly vapor slithered around me, saturated with the scent of ripened books. At the far wall was a descending spiral staircase, its steps crude and uneven, comparatively primitive to the city above, or below, I could not know. And still, to the boredom of my readers, I advanced, facing the banality of more stairs. I felt as if I was the fabled Xythius, retainer of the fungal crown, who quested through the slough of three million inconveniences. One step, then another, all fairly straightforward. As I neared the bottom I began to hear whispers, spoken in a tongue I could not understand. Cliché? If this was a work of fiction, perhaps but know that chaos words represent the universal warning for having ventured too far. Consult other world laws and universal constants to learn more. One step, then another, and I felt my soul burst into flames, immolating the ego and casting the psychic aftermath into the wind as cinders. Around and around my fragments twirled, pulled by gravity of something incalculably vast. I was as thought, a fugitive sentiment before an ancient intelligence. Here among the dreaming dead, I am ash, embers, and burning feathers, drifting through the firmament. Carried by wind, as if my wings were not vestigial, to land I am anchored, by murderous gravity. I am reformed, only to be torn apart, again and again, every trace, recycled reminders of who I used to be. I became blood on the hands of criminals. I became the noose around my own throat. From death, I am become one step closer to reel. From within the center of chaos, my fragments felt the vibrations of a great scream, a living emanation of mad anguish. Matter and form grew enamored and gathered around the existential wound. Neither sacred or profane, the hanged king took shape the shards of my ego becoming one with the walls of its throne room and dungeon. The veiled entity, asphyxiated by a noose of thorns, writhed upon its throne, bound in place by shackles, hooks, and spears. There, unmoved by the cosmic scream, stood the ambassador of Alagada, Although dwarfed by the hanged king, the two were of a similar countenance, a resemblance not shared with denizens of their kingdom. The hanged king lunged at its tormentor, more primal than regal, their faces a mere breath apart. The ambassador, callous and calm, lifted the veil with an ebon hand. Instead of a face... 
I beheld a visage of nihility, a god-shaped hole. All was void. First came a familiar aroma, a hint of vanilla, a drop of citrus, with a fixative of mold and mustiness. I opened my eyes and saw a lantern aglow with spectral fire, shelves overflowing with tomes both eldritch and mundane. I dipped a finger into a clay jar to my left, swirling the contents within. Satisfied, I withdrew a now ink-soaked claw, placed it upon a scroll of parchment, and began to transcribe my experience from memory. Ickus the Wayward, Wandsman of Kulmanas, Walker of the Astral Plane, Sailor of the Celestial Sea, and Spelunker of the Dimensional Depths. The Wandsmen are a fairly simple group on the surface, sitting somewhere between the Serpent's Hand and the Wanderer's Library itself. They have a profound interest in not just knowledge, but also stories, which they hold to have great value. Using their maps, they can instantly travel to any location in any dimension, an extremely powerful ability, but their pursuit is only in the gathering of stories. They use violence if they must, in cases of self-defense or when facing particularly uncivilized foes, but generally they are a group of peace-loving scholars. Yes, they all happen to be various bird creatures, for reasons even they are not sure of, but outside of typically appearing to be hideous, their forms offer them a fair number of advantages, many of which aid their scholarly pursuits. The Wandsmen are a fairly fresh group of interest, so there isn't a great deal of material written about them, but hopefully we see more of their stories in the future. <laughs>